I think it's it's the case of getting the the value of product design seen right at the beginning of the product development lifecycle, um, because it's about understanding what the problems are in the first place and how to solve them, and that the requirements can't be gathered from the users because the users don't necessarily understand what their requirements are right at the beginning. Um, so I think you, you know, if you say to a user, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? The users give you a laundry list of things that they think that they want or they think that they need, but that's not necessarily going to be what they actually end up using and what they actually need. Um, so I think you only get to that through understanding what the problem is at the outset through doing research and then um, hypothesizing and then testing out a variety of different solutions with users through rapid prototyping. So I'm a huge, huge advocate of rapid prototyping tools. Um, I've used them throughout my career. So I didn't come to product design from a graphic design background. I came from a I guess, a, a sort of a business analysis background. That was my first role at Capita and that was what I got exposure to. So um, I, I'm a big fan of, of building a like lo-fi prototype, putting it in front of a user and asking them to use it um, and then repeating that process iteratively multiple times. And I think that is the way that you will get to what the user really, really wants that product to do. Um, and I don't think you can get that from just asking them in a survey. Um, Hi, I'm Mike Green, a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Welcome to Understanding Users. In this podcast series, I chat with digital experts from a variety of disciplines, including user research, UX and service design, development and product management, and there's even a founder or two. I talk to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and the challenges they face in designing and building digital products and services with users in mind. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. So my guest for this episode is Claire White. Claire is the Associate Director of Product Design, effectively the lead product designer at Excientia. So uh, hi, Claire. Welcome to the show. Hello, Mike. It's great to be here. Tell me a little bit about um, your role, Claire, what you're up to at the moment and the organisation you work for. Okay, um, so I joined Excientia around 18 months ago. Um, this is my first um, foray into um, working for the pharma sector. Excentia is a pharma tech. Um, it's a AI precision medicine com uh, company committed to discovering, designing and developing the best possible drugs in the fastest and most effective manner. Um, and they, in fact, actually developed the first ever functional precision oncology platform to successfully guide treatment selection and improve patient outcomes in a prospective interventional clinical study, as well as to progress AI-designed small molecules in the clinical setting. Um, so I was really excited when I got the opportunity to join the organisation um, because they didn't have a product design function. Um, and I've always wanted to go about setting up a, a function from scratch. Um, and Accenti has given me the opportunity to do that. So um, I, I basically, you know, uh, nothing existed before I joined um, at all. So we have a, a engineering function. Um, we don't 
as of yet have a product function. Um, so I work very closely with the engineering teams, but my role was, I think, you know, initially um, around um, helping like the organization and, and teams within the organization to understand what product design is and, and the value it can bring um, to the applications that we're building. Um, so there's a bit of an education piece to my role um, in terms of advocating UX and, and the value it brings, but then there's also a lot of project-related work. So, Tell me about your kind of journey, your digital journey, if you like, from through digital to where you are now. Yeah. Fortunately, very fortunately for me, I actually ended up working in digital publishing, and I think that's where I discovered my passion for all things digital. Um, so I was working as a web editor at the time, um, and was heavily involved in the evolution of a community platform for um, teachers, uh, language teachers that were working all over the world, which was where we met, of course, um, and heavily involved in the evolution of that platform. So migrating it from front page, which was uh, used back in the day to a content management, well, to Dreamweaver initially, and then to a content management system. Um, and I think... I think that was the role actually that got me interested in um, product design, UX design, information architecture, because we essentially had to take a, an application um, which was static web pages and re-architect them into a framework so that users were able to find the content easily and intuitively. Um, so I think there was an, an information architecture element to that role, definitely, um, but it wasn't necessarily called out as an information architect role at the time. But it was a really exciting project to work on. Um, it, it showed me, I think initially in my first digital role, I was quite fearful about what about if I break something? What about if I do something that's going to make things go horribly wrong? And I remember my manager at the time just saying, just try it, just, just do something, just, you know, just see what happens. Don't worry, you won't break anything. And I think there's a lot of fear around technology. And I think that was one of the roles that enabled me to overcome that fear and try things out, see if they work. If that doesn't work, then try something else out and see if that works. So that was a, yeah, that was a bit of a sort of a, yeah, uh, an experience, I think. And then from there, um, still, I kind of maintained the educational theme in my career because I'm a qualified primary school teacher believe it or not. <laughs> um, and I went to work for Capita uh, and Capita at the time, they were, um, they had a, a large team of contractors, like 200 or so contractors, and they were building a platform for the Department for Education. And that platform was to disseminate um, professional development materials to primary and secondary school teachers. I was very fortunate in that I had some contacts in the education profession um, in that role for Capita. So we we had, it was quite a large scale user research program. So we would go all over the country interviewing um, head teachers and teachers and understanding what their user needs were when it came to um, finding professional development content, how how they would prefer to access that content. Um, and then once we, so we, we actually developed some personas um, which were based on not just a, a sort of proto persona that you would create without having that deep understanding of the users, but real personas, which in fact were turned into cutout personas, which were 
in the office so everybody could see the persona and what their user needs were. Every single member of the project team um, had very clear visibility of these giant personas that were dotted around the office. I've never worked anywhere again, for unfortunately, where um, personas have been so visible. You know, typically, actually, personas might be created and they will be stored on Confluence and never referred to again in the process. But I think when 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 designed correctly or when produced correctly, when they are based on actual research and insights of understanding what users do, they really help to forge that shared understanding um, of what the user and their needs are when you're developing um, when you're developing software and they can be continually referred to throughout the course of a project. Um, so yeah, that 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 particular project, I think there was a, a stack of user research that was done. I remember we did an awful lot of usability studies as well, uh, usability testing. Um, so when we were developing, again, what was a very complex navigation framework for the site, findability was really key. So we did extensive amounts of usability testing using Moray software, I think, um, in the time uh, back in the day. Uh, we did lots of eye tracking studies as well, and all of that helped to shape and influence um, uh, how we developed the platform what you said about personas that that's rings true the fact that in you know more recently i've ch- i've been battling with a similar thing that that you this stuff's created you know based on rich insights and it's kind of valuable you hope it's valuable but then it languishes yeah. in a google drive or on exactly as you say confluence or something and unless it's kind of up and visible it's kind of worse than nothing really which is really frustrating yeah, I think I think a really powerful thing that um, a, a powerful way to use personas, which I've I've used on a couple of projects, is to actually link them to user stories in Jira. So have them in Jira, or have them in Azure DevOps, or have them in whatever platform you're using, um, and and link them to the stories and you know the requirements that you're that you're gathering from them. So yeah, that's I think that's a good way of bringing them to life. But I think also having them very visible. Uh, as in a, in a physical way is is key as well, and that's not so easy when you're working in um, a, a remote way, um, and people have to access content from digital drives. It is quite easy to get lost. So, so on that note, in terms of kind of sharing insights, as as you, you know, you and your team are going through, what's the what's the way you do that? What do you think is the best way of doing that um, in terms of kind of keeping up stakeholders and and the team as a whole kind of aligned in terms of what what you know how development's happening how how research and design is happening i think you know i've learned over the course of my career that the best way to share insights um about what users need and what users are doing on your applications is to bring everybody along with you on that journey so um i think the developers and um product managers and product owners should be involved right at the heart, like right at the beginning stage of every single project. Um, every every discipline should be involved in that research piece. So um, recently conducted quite a large discovery, uh, discovery exercise last year at my current company. And we had key stakeholders involved during those discovery interviews. We had them involved in the synthesis of the research as well. So I think Involving them right at the beginning through the discovery and definition process is, is absolutely key. And I've been guilty of not always doing that. But I think that that's where you get the best results um, when everybody's involved right from the outset together um, and on the same page. 
And and you've talked about a, a number of different kind of verticals you worked in. So, you know, there was obviously, you know, Capita, you mentioned with the Department for Education. Uh, and I think you did some retail with Kingfisher. Is that right for a while? The, B, the B&Q yeah. um, group and yeah. B&Q. And now you're in pharma. I'm interested to know kind of what similarities there are and what differences there are across those different domains in terms of how user-centered design is approached. Um, I would say that there are lots of different ways in which it's been uh, approached in all of those different sectors that I've worked in. And that's got nothing to do with the sector. I think it's got more to do with the maturity of user experience within the organization and the size of the organization as well. Um, So at Capita, it was a very, very user, like because of the nature of the platform, because it was, um, we had this huge variety of roles all coming together. It's very well funded. So it was, it was right at the outset of everything that we did. Um, When I was working at Kingfisher, um, again, like a, a more mature organization um, and user researchers and user centered design was, I would say that the um, return on investment of user centered design was, was recognized, but I would say that the way in which the idealized way of executing the user centered design process was not, was not always followed perhaps. And I think that, and I think this is typical of many enterprise organizations. So I've worked client side in quite a few enterprise organizations. And I think that user-centered design is, is often seen as something that's bolted on after the requirements have been gathered um, from the different stakeholders. Um, and so you will receive like a, a JIRA task and that JIRA task may be to produce some wireframes or to produce, um, you know, a, physical like like artifact of some description and then if you're lucky you'll get to do some user testing um and i think that's that's quite typical of of larger like enterprise organizations that it's, it's sort of it's basically it's like a bolt-on whereas the way i see the use of design process is that it's something that should be uh it's something that should happen like at the beginning of every single i think it's it's a case of getting the the value of product design seen right at the beginning of the product development life cycle, um, because it's about understanding what the problems are in the first place and how to solve them. And that the requirements can't be gathered from the users because the users don't necessarily understand what their requirements are right at the beginning. Um, so I think you, you know, if you say to a user, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? The users give you a laundry list of things that they think that they want or they think that they need but that's not necessarily going to be what they actually end up using and what they actually need. Um, So I think you only get to that through understanding what the problem is at the outset through doing research and then um, hypothesizing and then testing out a variety of different solutions with users through rapid prototyping. So I'm a huge, huge advocate of rapid prototyping tools Um, I've used them throughout my career. So I didn't come to product design from a graphic design background. I came from a, I guess, a a sort of a business analysis background. That was my first role at Capita and that was what I got exposure to. So um, I'm a big fan of of building a like lo-fi prototype, putting it in front of a user and asking them to use it Um, and then repeating that process iteratively multiple times. And I think that is the way that you will get to what the user really, really wants that product to do. Um, 
And I don't think you can get that from just asking them in a survey. Um, but I think user-centered design is, I think it manifests itself in different ways across different organizations. And I think to some extent, it depends on the maturity of the, the organization and whether they have an established UX function or not already. Um, but yeah, I, would, I think it, it comes down to UX maturity within the organization more than anything and, and ensuring that UX and product design get that seat at the table right at the beginning of the product development lifecycle rather than right towards the tail end where they decide that something needs to be made. So what would you say then, Claire, are the biggest barriers to organisations doing user-centred design properly, if I can put it like that? Yeah, of course. I think it's, I think it's, I guess it's fundamentally probably one of the biggest barriers is understanding what user-centred design is um, in the first place. And it's not just visual visual design. Um, it's not just research. It's not just um, interaction design. It's, you know, it's a combination of, of all of those things. It's, you know, content comes into it as well. Um, like there are lots of different dimensions to user-centered design. Um, so I think it's, it's, I think it's breaking down um, the barriers around. I think there's lots of confusion in the industry just generally about, because obviously product designers, you know, that's now the the common job title. Um, when I first started out, it was, I was called an information architect. Um, I've been called a UX consultant. Um, I've been called a UX engineer. I've been called lots of different things. And I think probably organizations are quite confused as well, like hiring managers within organizations as into what type of skill set they actually want. So I think there's an education piece around what user-centered design is and and whether or not your UI or UX, that barrier, you know, that sometimes crops up in job descriptions. So I think there's an education piece, first and foremost. Um, I think there's definitely a time factor as well, how much time and scope uh, to include user-centered design um, there, there is available. Um, and I think that often as well, there's a perception that user-centered design will slow things down. Um, and I think there's, off, there's there's been like quite frequently actually challenges um, that I've experienced where you are trying to cram your user-centered design process within an agile sprint. And actually, you know, you need to fully understand the problem before you even contemplate through research and, and testing before you can hand anything off to an engineer. Um, so I think, yeah, time's a very big factor. I think that uh, we've been experimenting with dual track agile where I'm working right now. So we have um, lots of engineers, but we have like a very small number of product designers. Um, so we've been trialing a process where we try to get ahead of the engineers. Um, and I think that there's, I think that can be really successful as well. But then I think that can also create silos too. Um, because if you've got, you know, design who are working a couple of sprints ahead and engineers aren't involved with what they're doing or haven't got any insight into what they're doing, then I think that can that can also create, create a barrier and a silo. So that's why I think it's so important that engineers are involved in everything that the, the product designers are, are doing, um, whether it's a sprint or ahead or not. So I think time, um, I think there's an education piece around it. And then I think there's probably a cost piece as well, because I think ultimately... Um, you know, product design and user experience design and whatever we want to call it is one of those things that 
is likely to, unless you can really demonstrate the return on investment that you're offering, I think it's it's one of those roles that's, you know, it's it's disposable, isn't it, um, on a project? Depressingly, yes, sometimes. Um, you, you talked about kind of, um, you mentioned maturity a few times, and I think that's, yeah, it's a common uh, issue, if I can put it like that, kind of varying levels of UX maturity. I'm interested to know kind of how you see UX evolving as a discipline, kind of how does it, where do we go from here? I think that closer alignment um, between engineering and design is going to be really key. And I think that we're seeing the emergence of platforms that can support that. So, for instance, when I was looking at what type of tool to bring into the organization where I'm working now, Accentia, um, there was a tool called UX Pin, which basically allows you to drag in like coded components. So there's no more sort of design handoff, basically. Everybody's working from the same code base. So I see that there's likely to be a plethora of tools emerging in the future that will allow much more, you know, much closer collaboration between design and engineering. Um, I think that research is an area of design that's still the value of it is still continually like misunderstood depending on the organization and the size and, and the level of maturity and i think that i think that it's it needs to i think that we need to find ways in which to demonstrate financially to the business how important research is um, and i think it's it's kind of got a slow burn effect hasn't it so ultimately you know that if you include user-centered design at the beginning of the process then you're going to you're going to reach a better outcome but it's not an outcome that's going to be immediately obvious to the organization so and I mean not in the same way as if you you know because ultimately we're here to to make to help the businesses that we're working for make money or save money um, and businesses you can you can point to say for instance if you were like a a designer and you were working on an e-commerce app which I have done before um, you can by um, by making some tweaks to the interface through analytics you can point to a usability tweak that you made and say right there's a financial um, uplift from making that usability tweak so it's it's quite easy to sort of pinpoint to that I think research the research side of things and understanding the problems more successfully I think you can't like there's a obviously usability testing comes into research as well but you have to I think it's I think we need to find ways in which to make user research um, more valued within organizations um, I really believe like quite passionately about that um, and yeah I think again it's yeah, I think I think it depends on I think it, it does depend on, um you know, the maturity of the organization as well. And I actually I'm guilty of when I first started working in product design, user experience design, whatever we want to call it, um, not fully understanding why I was doing what I was doing. So I was, you know, almost work shadowing contractors who've been doing it for a long time. So I knew about personas and I knew about card sorting and I knew about usability testing and I was sort of almost rotely executing processes that I didn't fully understand why I was doing them and then I think it was only when I started working for Kingfisher actually 
and I had an internal internal in theory user base that I could actually spend as much time as I wanted to working very closely with them and understanding what they were doing and what problems they were having that I really started to understand why research is so important because it's about solving the right problems in the right ways for users um, not just cherry picking things from a requirements document that you think are important to solve so I was going to ask you about kind of um, the role of AI. So, I mean, it's almost the cliche to talk about ChatGPT because you can't go on LinkedIn at the moment without a million posts about ChatGPT. But in terms, you know, tools like that, whether it be DALI, whether it be, you know, all these other tools that are rapidly exploding on, in, you know, into our consciousness, what impact do you foresee those having on product design, UX design, um, kind of in the, in the medium, short and medium term? I think that we will see new design patterns emerging that will quickly become established within applications. I think that we're designing for a new technology right now and there aren't well-established design patterns out there. Um, so I think, yeah, we'll see the emergence of new design patterns that slowly over, the over time become well-established. On the AI side, and it comes down to those Nielsen-Norman principles usability principles that i'm a huge huge advocate of and i think that every anybody even contemplating getting into product design or ux design needs to familiarize themselves with those because i think they are really really key to everything that we do um, and as we know i think they're very well grounded in those usability principles are not going to change over time because human behavior by its very nature doesn't really change over time or we've so it's a very little change in it so i think it comes down to visibility of system status and i think that humans are going to always want to know what the system is doing behind the scenes um, the humans are going to want to educate themselves about what the AI, about what the ai is doing um, they're not just going to want to see an indeterminate progress like indicator in the background that's saying that the ai is doing something they're going to know what the ai the AI is doing and there's an education piece around obviously humans are training the AI um, and the humans want to continually learn and develop from observing what the AI is doing as well so what do you love about what you do Claire I'm quite extroverted and the best part of my role is interviewing users and hearing what their problems are I absolutely love it and I find this is this is my most challenging role to date and I think that one of the reasons is because I do not have a scientific background so trying to I have to have some level of awareness about what my users are trying to do so coming at it from a non-scientific background is quite difficult because there are some incredibly as you can probably imagine clever people working for Exientia. Um, but I absolutely like that's my favorite part of the role, interviewing users um, and understanding what their problems are and working out how I can potentially address those problems by creating solutions for them that will that will help make their lives easier. That's my favorite part of the job. I love lots of aspects of my role. I've been really incredibly fortunate to find a job that I really enjoy that's very intellectually challenging um, 
and yeah I'm, I, I love my job I've always loved my job I'm, I'm really lucky I love working in digital I love the fact that things keep changing that you continually have to stay abreast of new technologies so I'm going to bowl you a googly the next question is what frustrates you or challenges you about spending time working out what a solution could be and that solution gets shelved or not implemented sometimes for you know time and, and money constraints I think not having enough time to research and understand what the problem is in the first place which is often something that is you know deemed of a lesser priority on projects that I've worked on anyway I guess perhaps that we sometimes don't make it any easier for ourselves uh, in helping people to understand what we do because we might you know use lots of different terminology that sort of uh makes our role seem more mysterious than it actually is and actually you know really what we're doing is listening to people and understanding our what their problems are and trying to work out how we can solve those problems so i think perhaps we dress up the role sometimes you know recruiters dress up the role hiring managers dress up the role we ourselves dress up the role and what we're doing and i think that creates a barrier um sometimes between between us and what we do and and why organizations you know need us so the last part of this claire is the three card challenge so i've got uh ace of hearts queen of diamonds and jack of clubs and as as always i've I've written on the back of each either tool technique or trend so if you could just pick a card oh okay uh the queen of diamonds uh, Queen of Diamonds is trend. So what what trend do you foresee, uh, either good or bad, kind of in the coming down the road or perhaps unfolding at the moment? Oh, okay. I do. I can just say that like very confidently, actually. I really hate the hamburger menu being used on a website that can be accessed on a desktop. Um, that's a pet peeve of mine. It's completely unnecessary. You need to expose what the information architecture is, and it's very easy to understand, you know, to expose that on desktop. So I'm, I'm a huge, yeah, I disapprove of the hamburger menu being used on desktop. And that's a trend that I have seen emerge. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That's interesting. It's the first time someone's raised that on, on this show, really? but I, I know what you mean. It, it's creeping in more and more, isn't it? Desktop sites using a hamburger menu. It's not necessary. When it was designed essentially for mobile. It's completely unnecessary. Yeah. And it's a trend that's taken off because everybody's using it now. So everybody's copying everybody else. So irritating. Good stuff. All right, then. Two more cards. Yeah. Uh, Jack of Spades. So the Jack is technique. Technique. Tell me about your favorite or go-to technique when it comes to your role. Heuristic evaluation. Um, I would probably, when starting on a new project, if I've been engaged to improve the user experience on an existing application, um, always do a heuristic evaluation first because I think that helps to identify where the low hanging fruit are um and almost immediately you know without doing a redesign basically um and i think it's it's really easy to apply that technique and i think stakeholders will 
pay attention. Um, and for those who might not be familiar with the term heuristic evaluation, could you just kind of explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think it just essentially involves benchmarking um, an application, whether it's a desktop application or a web-based application, against a set of well-documented usability principles. And there are essentially there's a core set of usability principles, but those usability principles have emerged in different ways by different usability experts. But essentially, they are all saying the same thing. And a usability evaluation will help you to take those usability um, principles and apply them in context and see where that usability principle has been um, violated or or met successfully. So one being, again, back to Nielsen, Norman, visibility of system status. Um, If you submit a web form, then you would expect to get some feedback immediately that you're web form has been su- submitted successfully. So that's something that you can immediately pinpoint and, and say, right, you can improve that. And that doesn't need any metrics or analytics to support your argument. Again, we haven't touched on this much in this, but I've had a lot of experience in using data to back up user de- usability decisions that I've made um, or hypotheses that I've created. And I think when you combine usability and UX and analytics, then you've got a really amazing um, combination. Last card then, Ace of Hearts, which by default is Tool. What's your go-to tool or tool of choice? I uh, have got one favorite. I've used it for years, Azure, if you want to produce something, either low fidelity, to generate user requirements by putting something in front of the user that they can actually click through and use wins hands down every time. If you want to create a very high fidelity interactive prototype to use as a sales pitch to communicate a product vision to a senior stakeholder, hands down every time it wins that too. Um, So yeah, Azure all the way. Either that or a comparative tool like UX pin or just in mind, which I've also used quite extensively before. Not something like Figma? Figma is extremely popular. Um, we are using it at Accentia. Um, and it can be used to stitch things together. I'm I'm a huge prototyping advocate. You can stitch screens together and create a prototype, but effectively what you what you're creating is a an image map. Um, you're not actually creating something functional that's got conditional logic and business interactions baked into it. So it is really popular um, and we we are using it. And the reason we're using it is because you can share libraries and you can then therefore over time build out a design system um, and apply consistency throughout not just your designs, but the designs that other designers on your team are using. I think it's really useful for that. Um, and obviously you can create some beautiful things with it and it's a highly collaborative tool as well. So I think it's got some great features. It's not my favorite. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.